Welcome to Concord Matters, a show seeking for concord, agreement in Christian confession. Concord mattered to Jesus and Paul, and so it does to us also. Spend these next 60 minutes as we talk matters of Concord. Concord Matters, a program produced by the Christ-Centered Leader in Confessional Broadcasting, Worldwide KFUO, online at kfuo.org. Good afternoon and welcome. Welcome to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO. We're coming to you live today on this Tuesday, February 21st, uh, from St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, I can't tell if it's February 21st or April 21st. I'm enjoying this uh, nice warm weather. Uh, sitting here in the studio today in my shorts and golf shirt and sandals. So I, I, I don't know who's causing this climate change, but I'm kind of a fan of it. I'm your host for this program, Pastor Charles Henriksen. I'm the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bonterre, Missouri. Uh, we're, our program is called Concord Manners. We're working our way through the Book of Concord, the Lutheran Confessions, what our church believes, teaches, and confesses on the basis of God's holy word. And uh, you can join our program today. Today we're going to be looking at the article on justification from the Apology of the Augsburg Confession. And we welcome your comments or questions. Our telephone number, our toll-free number across North America is 800-730-2727. Again, 800-730-2727, or locally here in St. Louis, area code 314-821-0850. That's 314-821-0850. You can also email us your comments or questions. The email address is kfuo at kfuo.org. Our guest in studio today is Dr. David Maxwell. He's been on the program before. Dr. Maxwell is a professor of systematic theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Welcome, Dr. Maxwell. Thanks. It's good to be with you. Good. Explain to our folks briefly what is meant by systematic theology. Well, systematic theology divides up theology in terms of doctrinal topics, uh, so, you know, you might imagine if you're going to study theology, maybe you want to, like, study the book of Matthew. Well, that would be exegetical theology. But if you're going to study, like, the doctrine of baptism or the doctrine of justification or, you know, divide it in topics like that, that's systematic theology. And really, systematic theology kind of incorporates biblical theology and historical theology. I know you've done a lot of work in in church history, it kind of brings it all together. That's right. It? it really does. Yeah. For a practical purpose. Yeah. Well, because, you know, hopefully the doctrinal topics are actually based on scripture. So you've yeah. got a very strong scriptural component as well. Good, good. All right. Well, today we're going to try to employ all of those disciplines in our discussion. We were going to have another guest, but he hasn't shown up yet. So Dr. Maxwell is quite capable of holding down the fort here today. We're in the Apology of the Augsburg Confession uh, in Article 4 on Justification. And just to set the stage for our discussion today, I want to lead off by reading from the Augsburg Confession, which preceded the Apology, 
the article on justification, Article 4 in the Augsburg Confession, which reads as follows. Our churches teach that people cannot be justified before God by their own strength, merits, or works. People are freely justified for Christ's sake through faith when they believe that they are received into favor and that their sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. By his death, Christ made satisfaction for our sins. God counts this faith for righteousness in his sight. Romans 3 and 4. So this article here in the Augsburg Confession has a couple of the key terms, justification and faith, and that's kind of where we're going with this today. Now, that is a very short paragraph in the Augsburg Confession, kind of like they're taking it for granted that uh, the emperor and the and the Roman church would agree with them. Um, but how did this short paragraph in the Augsburg Confession lead to such a very long article in the Apology? I mean, if you read Article 4 in the Apology, it's just, I think it's probably the longest single topic of doctrine that is discussed in the whole Book of Concord in one article, perhaps. What happened in between? Uh, what led from a short sort of uh, cursory uh, article in the Augsburg Confession to this long discourse in the apology or defense of it? Well, after the Lutherans presented the Augsburg Confession uh, to the emperor, the the Roman Catholic side composed uh, what's called the confutation of the Augsburg Confession, which was their rebuttal. And uh, the then the apology of the Augsburg Confession is the Lutheran response to the Catholic rebuttal. And so uh, if you look, I, I, well, I haven't looked at this in a while, but I think it's true that the confutation against Article 4 is longer than Article 4, but it's not nearly as long as Apology 4 is. And so I think what that tells you is that the Lutheran side really thought this was a key issue that they needed to respond at length, you know, far at a far greater uh, depth and detail than even the objection that was raised against them. Why, why is it such a key article? And what did they realize you know, they said they and the Lutherans had said that they had corrected some abuses in the church, like on penance and the sacrifice of the mass and a couple other things. Was there some realization that this article of justification was leading to some of these problems in the church? A wrong view of justification led to some wrong practices about penance or the mass and so forth. Uh, yes, they they really saw justification as the heart of the uh, Reformation and the and the the key issue in terms of all of the abuses that they were trying to correct. So, for example, you mentioned penance uh, in the the Roman Catholic uh, way of practicing penance. Uh, they they would assign uh, you'd confess your sins and but then at the end there would be this penance that was assigned to you. And the understanding, at least in the 16th century, was that by doing whatever works the priest told you to do, that that's going to actually uh, mitigate the punishment for your sins. So you're kind of working off the satisfaction for your sins by your own efforts then. Yeah, and you can see that in Article 4, they actually use the word uh, satisfaction. Uh, well, our strength merits or works, I think. Yeah. Other, other translations actually use the word satisfaction in that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in that satisfaction will come up. Mm -hmm. Here in the apology, so so this idea of 
uh, uh, works of satisfaction. And how is the mass then, how, how is a wrong view of justification leading to some wrong practices in the mass or what we call the divine service? Well, in the case of the mass, uh, the, the 16th century abuse that they were most concerned about was the idea that the the mass was something we were offering to God, and or at so, least the priest was. Well, the priest was yeah. right. the 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 people were spectators, right? And the priest was doing this this work, is the way they would have thought of it, uh, offering uh, the sacrifice to God. And it's really uh, by by virtue of the priest's work is that's that's how you get forgiveness of sins. That was a 16th century. Uh, position that the Lutherans were arguing against, and um, and so th- that's different than justification by faith because their justification doesn't come by anyone's work other than Christ's. It comes by a promise. We should we should explain this term justification. We're using it like everybody knows what it means. I mean, I think people today when they hear the word justification, they're either thinking about the margins on their word processor right. or or justifying some making an excuse or rationalization for some behavior. What what does this term in this context mean, justification? Well, let me start with, you, you quoted AC4, and they quoted, uh, and AC stands for Augsburg Confession. They quote Romans 3 and 4. So let me start with sure. the scripture that this is based on. If you look in Romans 4, uh, you see that Paul uses Abraham as the big example of someone who is justified by faith. And so uh, in, in the course of doing that, Paul cites Genesis 15, 6, which says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so that's one way of expressing justification is that, that uh, God is crediting you with righteousness. All right, now, the, now we've explained justification with another sesquipedalian term. Well, let me keep going Righteousness, here. go ahead. So there's another, uh, uh, there's another uh, example that Paul uses in Romans 4, and that's the example of David as someone who is justified by faith. And there, what Paul does is he quotes Psalm 32, blessed are those whose sins are forgiven. So forgiveness of sins is another paraphrase of the concept of justification from Romans 4. And you see that in an article for the Augsburg Confession when they say we're received into favor, that's the crediting with righteousness. I think that's their kind of way of translating that and that their sins are forgiven. Well, that, that phrase actually comes from Romans 4. And so uh, so those are the two biblical images that Paul uses to flesh out the term is that that uh, God considers Abraham's faith to uh, to be what makes him right with God. Okay, so righteousness means being standing in a right relationship with God. Right. And and this term justification, I think of the term justice. Um, if if you take this term justification in, in the very narrow sense, it's sort of a courtroom scene, isn't it? Uh, how would you explain that if somebody's on trial in a court and God is the judge? What would it be to be well, justified? Ju- to be justified then would be for the judge to declare you innocent. Okay. But God's law says I'm not. Well, but what matters is what does the judge say? Okay. Uh, it's And that's actually quite a central uh, point in Lutheran theology as well. The thing that matters more than anything else is what does God say about you? That matters more than what you think about yourself. It matters more than any kind of objective standard standard. 
you know, you look at yourself and you see your sin. But if God says, you're my child, you're righteous, your sins are forgiven, then that's how it is. But how can he be a very good judge if he just sort of brushes aside all these violations of his commandments? On what basis can he be a righteous judge and declare a sinner like me righteous? Well, this is why Article 4 of the Augsburg Confession includes the phrase, for Christ's sake. For Christ's sake, okay. Uh, so that the death of Christ is actually the reason why God declares us righteous, because he's, uh, Christ is in our place. His death is in our place as a payment for sin. And this is why, as, as Paul says in Romans 3, God can be just, a good judge, and at the same time, the justifier of those who trust in Christ. Yeah, right. very good. All right, so uh, we're going to get into uh, this uh, justification by faith. I think uh, we've established now what this term justification means. Now we want to see how is this accomplished? Why is this by faith? And, and what does that have to do with my works or Christ's works? So we've looked at now... Uh, uh, what happened in between the Augsburg Confession and the Apology, just the space of a year, this uh, Roman confutation, the rebuttal against the Augsburg Confession. But um, I know you're, you've also done a lot of work in church history. Where did this sort of wrong view of justification kind of creep in to the medieval Roman Catholic Church? Uh, phrases like faith formed by love or God will not, to the one who does that which is within him, God will not deny grace. What alternative models of justification were going on in the church leading up to Luther's time? Well, if you ask me like exactly what the cause is, I'm not sure. All right, but what, but were the, the, but the, what, were, what was in the air? What was being said by theologians about how people are put right? Well, the, what Luther grew up with <clears throat> is called uh, nominalism. Uh, that's the kind of theology that it was, and and there the idea was that you uh, you you become a Christian by at least doing your best, and if you do your best, then God rewards you mm -hmm. by giving you grace. Now, once you have grace, then you're able to merit eternal life. You can't do it on your own, but you can do it with a help. God will grace. help you out. He helps you out, yeah. All right, so this is this idea of to the one who does that which is within him, God will not deny grace, and grace there is conceived as sort of a booster shot, like steroids or something, performance-enhancing right. yeah. drug. So your performance can, can work it out then, whether at the start or at the end. Yeah, so in what Luther, the theology that Luther grew up with, it's really all up to you to get it going, uh, and and that's there are other versions of Roman Catholic theology in the 16th century that that actually have God started, but that's not what Luther grew up with. Okay, that that for Luther, you had to get it going. Yeah, and then God will help reward you, out. you with grace, and yeah. then you can work it out. All right, and uh, what did what do they mean by faith formed by love? the Roman Catholics, or, or um, that it's not just faith, but it's uh, faith which works through love or faith formed by love. What what was their view of the relationship of faith and love, of the love that the Christian generates? Well, this was, uh, it actually goes back to a treatise of St. Augustine, the Enchiridion on Faith, Hope, and Love, where he correlates uh, the uh, faith with the creed, hope with the Lord's Prayer and love with 
the Ten Commandments, so you can recognize the parts of the catechism. But Luther, kind of in a backward order from what we well, do Well, Luther Lutherans. changed the order yeah. for reasons we can talk about later if you want. But, but, uh, but the result of all of this is that by Luther's day, they understood faith to be intellectual knowledge. So the, the and that's how it's correlated with the creed. The creed tells you what you need to know. All right. And so it's these are the facts. And everyone knows that just knowing stuff doesn't save you because James says even the demons believe that God is one and, and tremble. Right. So and in the so Gospels, that, who is it who identifies Jesus most correctly? It's the demons. We know yeah. who you are, yeah. Jesus. You're the Holy One of God, and he tells them to shut up. Right. So so obviously knowledge doesn't save anyone. Uh, and and if, if you understand faith to me to refer to knowledge alone, then it doesn't make any sense to say that you're justified by faith alone. Yeah, let's read the first paragraph of our new material today. We're picking it up at paragraph 48. We're in a section here that the editors call What is Justifying Faith? We're going to look at... Uh, some paragraphs here, starting at paragraph 48, if you have the Apology of the Augsburg Confession in front of you. So I'll read a paragraph, and then we'll talk about it. The adversaries, that would be the Roman theologians, the adversaries imagine that faith is only a knowledge of the history of Christ. Therefore, they teach that it can coexist with mortal sin. They say nothing about faith, by which Paul so frequently says that people are justified. For those who are counted as righteous before God do not live in mortal sin, but the faith that justifies is not merely a knowledge of history. It is to believe in God's promise. In the promise, for Christ's sake, forgiveness of sins and justification are freely offered. And so that no one may suppose that this is mere knowledge, we will add further it is to want and to receive the offered promise of forgiveness of sins and of justification. Dr. Maxwell, as you said, it's not just a, an intellectual knowledge that Jesus is the Son of God and, and what he came to do and so forth. That's not trusting in him, which is what we're talking about here with faith or belief. In my instruction classes, I always uh, use this illustration. I don't know if it's the best one, but I use it. I put a chair out in the midst of the room and I say, you know, I believe that that is a chair. I really do. I strongly believe that is a chair. I said, and I asked the people, how is that different from the believing or faith that the Bible's talking about here? And they always eventually come up with the, the idea that to really trust in that chair would be actually to put yourself in it and to trust it to hold you. So it's not just believing that the chair exists, but uh, that you're entrusting your life to it. How does that relate to uh, what what the Melanchthon here is saying in this uh, paragraph? Well, <clears throat> Melanchthon wants to, to distinguish between faith as trust, which you're describing as sitting in the chair, and faith as merely a knowledge of the history of Christ. Um, and I think this is worth thinking about just a second here, that the, the, the basic move that he's making is to to move away from a theology where you're saved by God giving you some information that you need to act upon to a theology in which you're saved by God making a promise to you. I mean, that's fundamentally and the what's and, going And the on. idea of a promise is that the promise is filled or supplied by what God has done. That's right. Yeah. You know, it's ironic that in a lot of American evangelical churches, what is here sort of the Roman Catholic error 
finds a new shape in American evangelicalism where the Bible's presented as information that you have to act on rather than a promise of a, of a gift. That's right. Yeah, I, th- I think that's probably a fair statement. Okay. Well, he mentions here about mortal sin. In this context, what is meant by, he says that um, the adversaries teach that faith can coexist with mortal sin. And he says, uh, those who are counted as righteous before God do not live in mortal sin. What is What is that term mortal sin referring to? Well, the there's a difference in the way Lutherans and Roman Catholics define the term mortal sin. For, for in the Roman Catholic uh, understanding, at least the 16th century one, that there are specific sins that are mortal sins, like murder and adultery and and that sort of thing, that you can't get forgiven for. That, that are really worse. Well, that you you can get forgiven for them, but you have to go to confession or go spend some time in purgatory, or maybe or. No, no. If you die committing a mortal sin, you go to hell. You don't go okay. to purgatory. All right. Yeah. Uh, so, so they there. It's predicated on a distinction between mortal and venial sins. Venial sins are the uh, the less severe, the pardonable sins. Pardonable is what venial means, uh, and those are the sins that you work off in purgatory. Okay. Um, but but it's kind of so you got serious sins and not so serious sins. Well, one of the first things that happens in Luther's theological development is he gives up the idea that you can you can distinguish between some sins that are serious and some that are not. He kind of blows that apart. I've read in the in the Heidelberg Disputation in fifteen eighteen. He really does. That yeah. sin damns you, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. So there's no so so he uh, he does undermine any kind of distinction between mortal and venial sins by saying every sin will damn you. And what's more, if you don't trust in Christ, even your good works will exactly. Sin. I mean, it's quite it's trust, he says, yeah. trusting in your works is make you twice the child of hell. Yeah, it's not your sins that are the problem. It's either what you think are your good works. Yeah, so yeah, really yeah, yeah. Get you. Okay. But. Good. Let's go on to paragraph uh, forty nine here. Um, the difference between this faith meaning justifying faith. Well, can I just stop on the mortal sin? Sure. The, the Lutheran way of understanding mortal sin is any sin that that you commit where apart from where you don't have faith because faith is what forgives sins. And so that that's what makes sense out of his statement. That the righteous can't coexist or live in it. Right, because part of our definition of uh, when we use the term moral, so we don't normally because yeah. it's a, confusing it's not, term. it's not, it's a confusing term, but, uh, but in a Lutheran understanding, the sin that sends you to hell is the sin that's not forgiven. It's not that there's a certain list of them. It's the, the, the key question is whether sin's forgiven or not. But in the other, in the, in the Roman Catholic understanding, a mortal sin could coexist with faith in the sense that someone could still have the knowledge about Jesus and then commit murder or something. It doesn't mean that they've forgotten everything they knew okay. learned in catechism. You know, so, so what Melanchthon is getting at is that's a very attenuated understanding of faith. It's, not, it's just not very strong because it's just knowledge. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. All right, paragraph 49. The difference between this faith, that is truly justifying faith, and the righteousness of the law can easily can be easily discerned. Faith is the divine service, and here's the Greek term, latreia, uh, that receives the benefits offered by God. The righteousness of the law is the divine service, latreia, uh, that offers to God our merits. 
God wants to be worshipped through faith so that we receive from him those things he promises and offers. What's the distinction here between these? He's using the same term, latreia, which means worship, uh, the worship of the law and the worship of, we would call it the gospel, uh, the worship of faith. Well, when you worship God, you want to honor him. And so the question is, how do you honor God? So if you're oriented towards the law, you might think, okay, well, the way I honor God is to obey him or to do all sorts of uh, uh, really difficult works uh, or to offer him my devotion or uh, something like that, where you honor God by doing something for him. Shouldn't we do that as Christians, honor God by our works? Uh, yes. But, but, but the... the the question is what what's what comes first? Okay. What is the true worship that honors God that everything else flows from? And and the answer that's given in the paragraph you just read is that you you worship him through faith. That is to say, what does God want more than anything else? He wants to you he wants you to trust him. To receive his gifts. To receive it, receiving his gifts is honoring God more than yeah. anything else. So it's a question of the 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 cart and the horse. That's right. The, the first thing is to receive his gifts. Then in with this new life of the of the spirit and faith, then we want to do good works that are pleasing to God to keep that in the right order. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, it's a question of order. I believe we're coming up pretty soon on the break. Is that correct? Should we take our break now? Good. Uh, you're listening to Concord Matters here on KFUO. We'll be back in a minute. Join Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org kit to download the Refugee Sunday kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. lirs.org kit. This week on Issues Etc., we'll talk with Dr. Anthony Esselin about rebuilding American culture. We'll look forward to Transfiguration Sunday with Dr. Carl Fikancher. We'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Jesus healing a blind man. And we'll discuss the drive to abolish male and female with Ashley McGuire. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. On Law and Gospel, Mondays are the day when we look at readings for the following Sunday. Tuesday and Thursday are Ruminations Day when we bring in a pastor to help us discuss an issue. Wednesday is an Insight Day where we take a look at a theological insight. And Friday is Open Mic Friday. Please join us. Weekday mornings beginning at 9.30 on KFUO. You listen to Worldwide KFUO often. You try not to miss your favorite program because you benefit from the gospel message proclaimed. But have you shared KFUO with your friends and family? It's easy to do. Just like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash KFUO radio and share us. You can email your friends or family an audio link of one of your favorite programs and let them hear for themselves. Share KFUO and help spread the gospel to the world. 
That's the good news in The Messenger of Good News. Worldwide, KFUO. We are back on Concord Matters. We're coming to you live on uh, Tuesday, February 21st from the studios of Worldwide KFUO here at the International Center of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. I'm your host, Pastor Charles Henriksen. I'm the pastor of St. Matthew Lutheran Church in Bon Terre, Missouri. If you want to find out more about our church, it's stmatthewbt.org. Uh, you can participate in our program today with your comments or questions. Toll-free number 800-730-2727. And locally here in St. Louis, area code 314-821-0850. And our email address, kfuo at kfuo.org. Our guest today is Dr. David Maxwell, professor of systematic theology at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. We're in the apology or the defense of the Augsburg Confession in Article 4 on the doctrine of justification, uh, how we are put right with God. And uh, uh, Melanchthon, the drafter of the, the author of the apology here, is saying that it's by faith in Christ, not by our merits or works, as, as the Roman theologians had said. So we've been talking about that, and we're going to pick it up then at um, paragraph 50. Faith means not only a knowledge of the history, the history of Christ, who he is, but the kind of faith that believes in the promise. Paul plainly testifies about this when he says in Romans 4, verse 16, that is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed. He judges that the promise cannot be received unless it comes through faith. Therefore, he puts them together as things that belong to one another. He connects the promise and faith. Dr. Maxwell, what is this relationship between the promise and faith, and why does that make, uh, uh, make everything guaranteed or more sure than if it were on our merits? Because the promise is what actually saves you. Uh, to use an image that Luther uses in the, uh, his country in Galatians, uh, it's, it's like a, uh, if you think about a nut that has a kernel, like an acorn, let's say. It has a, a kernel in it, and it also has a husk. Uh, <clears throat> that Luther would, uh, and this is actually him discussing the phrase you mentioned earlier, faith formed by love. He didn't like that phrase because what that suggests is, that love is the kernel of the nut and, fa and faith is, is the husk. And so it's really, if you say faith formed by love, you're just really saying you're saved by, by your love. Which is your work. Your, your work, right. Yeah. And so what Luther does instead, he says, now what you ought to say is it's faith formed by Christ. And so using the same image, if faith is still the husk and Christ is the kernel, then what that makes clear is that that faith is just the recipient, but what really does it is Christ, or to put it in the language of the apology, that God's promise is what actually saves you. Very good. Uh, and he quotes here from Romans 4, and it's especially in uh, that section in Romans 4, and then likewise, as you mentioned, Galatians, Galatians 3, where Paul says pretty much the same thing in both places. 
the 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 relationship of faith that takes hold uh, that receives the promise uh, of what Christ has won for us. And I think that's why at our seminaries we always require the the guys to read to have a course in Romans and Galatians because those are kind of the centerpieces uh, for the doctrine of justification. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. All right, and and let's get to this next paragraph fifty one about the relationship of parts of the creed. I thought this was pretty interesting. Paragraph fifty one. It will be easy to decide what faith is if we consider the creed, where this article certainly stands, the forgiveness of sins. It is not enough to believe that Christ was born, suffered, was raised again, unless we add also this article, which is the purpose of the history, the forgiveness of sins. To this article, the rest must be referred, namely that for Christ's sake, and not because of our merits, Forgiveness of sins is given to us. For what need was there that Christ was given for our sins if our merits can make satisfaction for our sins? What is the the point here about the parts of the creed, about the history of Christ, that he was born, suffered, raised again, and then the, the article about the forgiveness of sins? Where would we find these two respective things in the creed, in the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed? Well, the history of what Christ accomplished is in the second article, okay. where it goes through, you know, he was uh, made man, crucified, died, buried. Born of the Virgin Mary. Yeah, all, yeah. all of that. And and then in the third article, you get the phrase uh, forgiveness of sins. I believe in uh, the forgiveness of sins. And so what Melanchthon is doing is here is he is saying that that's actually the purpose of all of the historical narration that happens in the second article. It's all leading to the it's forgiveness of sins. It's leading to that, yeah. That's, that's the purpose of why he did right. all these things. And so what that means is effectively the, the creed functions as a promise. It doesn't merely function as, here's the information you have to know. Okay, good, good. Yeah, all right. And then now he talks more about the promise and merits and grace in this next section, uh, paragraph 53. Whenever we speak of justifying faith, we must keep in mind that these three objects belong together, the promise, grace, and Christ's merits as the price and atonement. The promise is received through faith. Grace excludes our merits and means that the benefit is offered only through mercy. Christ's merits are the price because there must be a certain atonement for our sins. So these three things, the promise, grace, and Christ's merits. Um, explain that a little further. Uh, 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 what what faith does with the promise, what does it mean that it's by grace, and how are Christ's merits different from our merits in what they do? Well, the, the promise is God's promise to forgive our sins and to save us. The term grace, I think what he's getting at here is that that, that promise is free. It's not made in response to something. Yeah, uh, It's just out of his own goodwill towards us that he makes the promise in the first place. And that Christ merits as the price and atonement, uh, well, that would refer to his uh, sacrificial death on the cross, fulfilling the Old Testament sacrificial system. Uh, which is the basis for um, for his forgiving our sins. So merits refers to what somebody earns, 
right. by their work. Uh, so we are saved by works. The only thing is it's not our works. It's, it's Christ's works. What does this term atonement mean? Well, it comes... Uh, it says there must be a certain atonement for our sins and that the price is Christ's merits. Well, in English, and I used to think that this was just an armchair etymology, but this actually turns out to be the etymology of the word. <laughs> Atone is at one. I at mean, one. it's making making you at one with God. So reconciled back it's to God. It's a reconciliation. Now, having said that, it's also the case that uh, it it's sometimes used to translate, uh, I think, the the word hilasterion. Propitiation. Yeah. Which or sacrifice of atonement is yeah. sometimes you see that, and and what that's referring to it's in Romans three it occurs Jesus is the propitiation or the sacrifice of atonement. In there, in that case, what it's referring to is the the uh, cover on the, uh, on the atonement seat in in the temple. Yeah, so this and it is goes the, back to the Old Testament. Yeah, it goes the back day to of Leviticus, Yom right. Kippur. So on the day of atonement, the priest would go into the holy of holies and he'd sprinkle blood. On on the what Luther translated the mercy seat, the 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 cover the ark of the covenant, and um, and the term for that is propitiation or sacrifice of atonement. And so when Paul comes along and and actually uses that term to refer to Christ in Romans three, uh, what he's doing is he's saying Jesus fulfilled the day of atonement in Leviticus by his sacrifice. It goes yeah. back to the Old Testament sacrifices, which had to be repeated over and over and over again, even the, the Day of Atonement sacrifice, showing that the blood of bulls and goats cannot really cover our sins, but the blood of the Holy Son of God in the flesh is enough to cover the sins of everybody of all times. Right. Yeah, good. So you mentioned this term mercy, mercy seat. Paragraph 54 through 56. Scripture frequently cries out for mercy. The Holy Fathers often say that we are saved by mercy. Therefore, whenever mercy is mentioned, we must keep in mind that faith, which receives the promise of mercy, is required there. Again, whenever we speak about faith, we want an object of faith to be understood, namely the promised mercy. For faith justifies and saves, not because it is a worthy work in itself, but only because it receives the promised mercy. Here Melanchthon talks about faith, if you were just looking at it as a work of our of me, oh, I've got this heroic faith. I, I mean, I'm really trusting God. You know, that's not worth a hill of beans. But it has value because of the object. You want to comment on that? Yeah, well, this is actually, to my mind, one of the most challenging and difficult areas in Lutheran theology to get this right. And that's because, you know, Lutherans stress that you're justified by faith alone. Well, so faith must be really important, right? And so then that can uh, can cause you to have questions like, well, okay, how's my faith? You know, do I have a strong faith or I have a weak faith? Did I, I decide for Jesus strong yeah, did, enough? Did I, do I believe? Maybe I believe, but do I really believe? You know, these kinds of introspective questions where you begin to question, maybe not the presence of your faith, but how strong it is, you know, and those sorts of things. 
and and then you hear this really heavy emphasis on faith from Lutheran sermons, right? And so then you just begin to wonder, well, where do I stand? And so this is why I think this last sentence you read is is extremely important. Faith justifies and saves not because it is a worthy work in itself, but only because it receives the promised mercy. And so if I can just refer back to that an- analogy that Luther used of the the nut with the, the kernel and the husk, that faith's just a husk. I mean, no matter how no matter how much we emphasize it's important and so forth, what Melanchthon wants you to understand is that the reason faith saves is because it receives the mercy. It's the mercy that saves you. It's not the strength of your faith um, or something like that. So we don't put faith in our own faith. We put faith in, in That's Christ right. yeah. and the mercy that God gives and, us because of Christ. And I think that the reason Melanchthon emphasizes faith so much is because if you're justified by faith rather than your merit or your works that you do, then what that makes clear is that salvation happens by a promise because faith is always in a promise. So it's God saves you by a promise. He doesn't save you by giving you information that you need to act upon. It's something outside of us. It's right. something that God right. gives to us. All right. Um, moving on to paragraph 57 here, uh, reading as follows. Throughout the prophets and the Psalms, there he's talking about the Old Testament. Throughout the prophets and the Psalms, this worship, this latreia, uh, and he's there talking about the worship that receives God's promise. This worship is highly praised, even though the law, the commandments, does not teach the free forgiveness of sins. The Old Testament fathers knew the promise about Christ that God, for Christ's sake, wanted to forgive sins. They understood that Christ would be the price for our sins. They knew that our works are not a price so great a matter. So they received mercy and forgiveness of sins by faith, just as the saints in the New Testament. Now, in a moment, he's going to give an example from Psalm 130, but so we'll sort of leave that on the shelf. But what he's saying is that the Old Testament saints, if you will, were saved the same way we New Testament Christians are saved, and that is through faith. He's saying that, you mentioned the example of Abraham, uh, that Abraham was a Christian. How can he say that if Abraham lived 2,000 years before Christ, or that David, 1,000 years before Christ, was a Christian saved by faith, if Christ hadn't come yet? Well, because the Old Testament saints are are saved by placing their faith in the promise that they did have. which So in the case of Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky or uh, the promises of forgiveness of sins through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Those are all things that are fulfilled in Christ. Um, but let me just kind of uh, reflect a little bit on, on the difference that I think you're highlighting here. And that is that sometimes you hear today that God saved the Old Testament people through the law and he saved the New Testament people in a different way through the gospel, or that there's like a different plan of salvation from the two Testaments. And and that's just not the case. Uh, And you can see that, I think, most clearly in Romans 4, when Paul wants to come up with an example of someone who's, who's the poster child, if you will, of justification by faith, the person he picks is Abraham. Well, and David also, these two. And David. Abraham and David. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, uh, David, who said, blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, yeah, um, in the Psalms. 
and and we really see that throughout the Old Testament. You're making an excellent point here that uh, God's promise of a Savior was running throughout the whole Old Testament. In fact, we even where where do we find the first expression of of the promise or the gospel in the whole Bible? Uh, what would you say? Well, it would be Genesis three. Yeah, uh, explain that, please. Well, this is a, a God speaking to the serpent said uh, that talking about the woman's seed, he will, you will, uh, uh, he will, I always mix will strike him strike in the heel, heel and, and he'll crush his head. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, so what that refers to then, it, you know, understood as fulfilled in Christ is that serpent, the serpent strikes his heel when he crucifies Jesus. When Jesus was nailed yeah. to the cross. Uh, but then at the resurrection, Jesus crushes the serpent's head. Through the seed of the woman, yeah. by, by Mary right. giving birth to Christ. Yeah, so so that, with the first sin, came the first promise, the first gospel. Yeah. And we see that then running through the whole Old Testament. You mentioned, well, we go from uh, to Adam and Eve, to Abraham, Genesis 12. Uh, we mentioned uh, David, um, when he sinned with Bathsheba. Pastor Nathan said, your sins are forgiven. And there was also the promise that of... Uh, from David's line would come a great king uh, through whom all these blessings. Um, explain uh, the servant in Isaiah as as a, a, a promise of the gospel, like the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. Well, the the you have the servant in Isaiah who's uh, described as being stricken, smitten, and afflicted, and uh, Christian... Church fathers uh, very often see that as as being fulfilled in the crucifixion of Christ, uh, but let me uh, let me just point out also that it's not only in the prophecies that you see Jesus referred to in the Old Testament; it's also in the narratives. Yeah. So the big example of this would be the Exodus story. Sure. Uh, and, and so in the Exodus story, you have God delivering His people from slavery in Egypt. And, and he, he takes them through the Red Sea. And already in the New Testament, this story is applied to Christ. When Paul says things like Christ, our Passover is sacrifice. Well, that's part of the Exodus story. Yeah, with the blood of the Passover yeah. lamb on the doorpost, the, the death passed over them. Right. So so it's uh, even in the, already in the New Testament, but very strongly in the early church and in Luther as well, the Exodus story was seen as... Uh, something that was pointing to Christ and it was fulfilled in Christ's death and resurrection is fulfilled in his death in that his death corresponds to the Passover sacrifice, the, the sacrificing the lamb, and then his resurrection corresponds to the crossing of the Red Sea. Good, good. So the point here that Melanchthon is making is that the promise of forgiveness of sins for Christ's sake was running through the Old Testament. It's not just in the New Testament. Good. And But he does give this example from the Old Testament, uh, from the Psalms, paragraph 58. To this point belong those frequent repetitions about mercy and faith that appear in the Psalms and the prophets. For example, Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Here David confesses his sins and does not list his merits. He adds, but with you there is forgiveness, verse 4. Here he comforts himself by his trust in God's mercy, and he refers to the promise, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope, verse 5. 
This means because you have promised the forgiveness of sins, I am sustained by your promise. Interesting, this Psalm 130, that was the the psalm, a penitential psalm that Luther based his hymn, From Depths of Woe I Cry to Thee, uh, the De Profundis uh, psalm. So it has confession of sin and then reliance on the promise, what we do in confession and absolution in church. Well, and I think that the reason why Melanchthon would gravitate towards passages that refer to forgiveness of sins is that because at least there it's clear that you're not meriting it, yeah, right? I mean, if you're asking for forgiveness, then by definition, you're, you don't deserve it, right? I mean, if, if, you were, if you really thought you were depending on your own works, then forgiveness wouldn't be the right category to use. Sure. All right, we're coming uh, towards the end of this section. I want to get through these next two paragraphs here. Uh, we've got about six minutes left here. Um, paragraph 59. Therefore, the fathers uh, were not justified. That means the Old Testament fathers. The fathers also were justified, not by the law, by their keeping of the commandments, but by the promise and faith. It is amazing that the adversaries, that's the Roman Catholic theologians, diminish faith to such a degree, even though they see that it is everywhere praised as a great service. For example, Psalm 50, verse 15 says, Call upon me in the day of trouble, I will deliver you. Uh, you've read the Roman Catholic theologians of the Middle Ages. Uh, is that an exaggeration that they diminished this kind of faith that only looks to the promise? Uh, were they always attaching strings to it? What is your reading of the medieval theology? What I think Melanchthon is is doing is he's arguing against the most extreme form of this kind of error that because you can find other Catholic theologians that that wouldn't really fit. I mean, that emphasize God's mercy more, but I think what, I think what Melanchthon wants is for the Roman Catholics to disavow the extreme position. And that's what they're saying and in they, the confutation. And they, yeah. They just kind of don't do it in the confutation. I mean, they, uh, the, they don't. The confutation is a little bit more mercy oriented than than the the uh, Catholic theology that Luther grew up with, but they never disavow that stuff. And I think Melanchthon is just kind of pushing on them. He wants it to be clear. Yeah. Good. 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 All right. And then uh, finishing up here with the last paragraph in this section, God wants Himself to be known. He wants Himself to be worshipped, so that we receive benefits from Him and receive them. Because of his mercy, not because of our merits, this is the richest consolation in all afflictions. The adversaries ban such consolation when they diminish and disparage faith and teach only that by means of works and merits, people interact with God. How have the Roman adversaries kind of turned the whole Bible on its head in terms of what direction the arrows are going between us and God. Well, you see the emphasis on consolation in that paragraph, and I think that kind of gets at this uh, point, is that what the Lutheran reformers were very much concerned about uh, it, when it comes to the kind of abuses that they were trying to correct is that those abuses uh, 
tortured consciences, basically. I mean, that they terrified people and they, they refused to give them the consolation of the gospel. And whereas the, uh, the Lutheran view is that the, the whole purpose of theology is to provide consolation to the sinner uh, and salvation, and uh, that if you have a theology that all it can do is give you the rules and kind of crush you, then you don't have a theology that honors Christ because the whole point of Christ coming is to be a savior. The mediator, as right. Langton often says. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I see that running through the confessions over and over and over again, the sort of twofold refrain that this teaching is the only one that gives all honor to Christ, the mediator. And secondly, this is the only teaching that gives true and, and, and reliable consolation to troubled consciences. So these are this sort of the, the, the honor toward God and the, and the pastoral concern for souls. Is this still an, uh, a needed consolation today for our listeners? Well, if your listeners are sinners, then yes. Anybody out there sinners? Raise your hand. I see people all over the parking lot raising their hands right now, including me. I'm sitting here in the studio raising my hand. Why is this the only true consolation for my conscience? Because anything else that you pick is subject to your own weakness and uncertainty. But God's promise and what Christ has done, that is totally... Yeah, what he says is is the way it is, yeah. period. Yeah. yeah. So it's not by your works, dear friends. It's by Christ's works that you are justified, that you are put right with God. And so trust in this Christ. Uh, this is the only thing that's going to give you comfort to know that your sins are forgiven by the blood of the Holy Son of God who died on the cross for you and rose from the dead so that you would have everlasting life. This is the gospel. This is the promise. And so your trust in Christ is uh, not a great work that you've done. It's, it's extolling the great work that God has done in Christ for you. So take comfort, take consolation in the midst of your afflictions. Know that God is for you. And in spite of anything that may be going on, you can trust in God's promise. And this is his promise for you. You've been listening to Concord Matters here on Worldwide KFUO.